Well, good morning, church. First, I want to start with an announcement before we get into God's Word this morning. And the announcement is, next Sunday, a week from today, we want to have a Lord's Table service together. So this will be an opportunity to, um, I want you to gather in advance to prepare, get have, have bread and a cup ready, so that when we together online can uh, share in the Lord's Table. Now, you don't have to go out and get um, Passover matzah bread to have the right unleavened bread. You can get other kinds of bread if you want unleavened. Well, you could uh, get other kinds of flat bread. You could even use a tortilla bread, or you can use... Any bread that you have available, really. We understand the picture and the object lesson of what we're celebrating together in the Lord's table. So have bread and have, have a cup, have, have some grape juice, even some wine, and uh, we will celebrate the Lord's table together next week in our streaming service together. I'm looking forward to that. Now, before we get into God's Word, I want us to... Just uh, pause for a minute, and I want to have a word with the kids. So kids, get ready, and we'll shift over to that. Well, kids, when I was young, and we would play games, and our family would play different kinds of strategy games at times, like Risk or like Monopoly. And in those kind of games, there are always choices that you make. And sometimes you choose the right thing to do, sometimes you choose the wrong thing to do. And then sometimes those choices that you did it ended up, and the game's over, and I would lose. And I would look back on. Maybe it's the uh, end of the night, and I'm looking back, and it's, it's, it's now time to go to bed, and yet I can't sleep. Because my mind won't let go. My mind keeps churning over the things that I did. And what if I hadn't done this? What if I had chose to do this? What if I'd done something differently? The whole thing might have turned out differently. I, I might have won instead of lost. You know, the funny thing is, in playing the game, it might not have been this choice or that choice that I made that made me lose it all. It might simply have been the roll of the dice. It might simply have been that the others were I was playing with were better than I. Well, probably not. But my mind could not let go. That's the point. I kept looking backwards at what I had done, and I couldn't find any peace. I couldn't find rest. I couldn't sleep. Well, what's to do? Well, the same thing can happen to us with other choices that we make, with other things that we do. And there's things that we do that we know we should not have done that. And then we look forward and maybe new trouble comes and we might be thinking, this trouble has come to me. This bad thing now is happening because of what I did before. Maybe God is punishing me for something I did before. Well, what do we do if I chose to do something wrong? What we can do is we can ask forgiveness of the person that we hurt. We can ask them to forgive us. We can ask God to forgive us when we've done something wrong. Now, after we've asked God to forgive us if we've done something wrong, do you think we should continue to think about it, dwell on it, look backward at that thing that we did? God says when he forgives us, he forgets. He said our sins he remembers no more. Well, if God has forgotten has forgotten those things that he's forgiven, do you think we should continue to look backwards on them? No. Instead of looking backwards, we should look upward at God who forgives us, and we should look forward into the things that God would now have us to do. That's what I'm going to talk about this morning. We're going to talk about looking upward instead of looking backward. On Mother's Day, 
We're reminded of the best examples, even ideal examples of mothers. Paul himself takes the ideal example of a mother in expanding his image of the church as God's family functioning together. Paul describes how, like a mother taking care of her own children, that he and his ministry shared with them not only the gospel but his own lives, how he labored and toiled, working day and night, sacrificially giving of himself for them. You know, there's a Mother's Day message in that one reference, isn't there? That mothers work hard, they sacrificially love, they, they, they're, they're, and central in their parenting, and central in raising up children is grounding them in the gospel. And that this ideal is not only for our own families, parenting of our children, but this ideal is for us to live out together in the church as God's family. You see, what we know of the ideals of mothers should be normal in the spiritual nurturing, in the spiritual nurturing of one another in the church. God's beautiful and growing, yet awkward and imperfect extended family. And yet, in God's family, and in your own family, things are not always perfect, are there? Often there are griefs and regrets. There are things that don't always go well, things that we could have done differently, because sometimes things go terribly wrong. And when they do, we have a tendency. And I think women... Mothers, sisters, ladies have seem to have a sensitivity of heart that gives them a particular vulnerability to look to themselves and to, to bear the blame, to say to themselves, what if I had only done more? What if I'd only been a better whatever, a parent, a friend, a spouse? And maybe this wouldn't have happened. I want to warn us this morning of that tendency to look backward instead of looking upward. That we are broken people in a broken world, and we don't do anything purpose perfectly. And so, we need to be careful about playing this game of hopeless regrets. Parents will always have plenty of opportunity to wish they had done things differently. We will never get it perfectly right. And yet, I've been encouraged in the realization that the very first children to go astray, all the way back in Genesis 3, did not do so because of anything done wrong by their father. I want us to turn this morning to the story of a woman in the Bible, a woman who must have joined in this game of regrets, in this tendency to look backward instead of looking upward. Because that story is a story of hope. It's a story for hope for us as well. It's a story that will help us to look upward instead of backward. And so I invite you to turn to the story of Naomi in the book of Ruth. And as we turn to, to Ruth chapter 1, I'm going to invite Brad and Kathy Williams to read those first 13 verses of Ruth chapter 1. That'll set the stage for us. Good morning, Brush Prairie family, and what a wonderful sunny Sunday we're going to have today. I'm so excited. Mm -hmm. We're going to be reading from Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 13. In the days when judges ruled the land, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn into the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The names of the man of, was Amalek, and the name of the wife was Naomi. The names of the two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. She was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives, the name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, 
and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her two daughters-in-law to return to the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from that place where she, where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Now, that's not a terribly encouraging or uplifting start to the story, is not But there's always more to the story, and that's really part of the point. We only focus on the thing that we can see, and the bit that we can see, things might not look so good. But there's always more to the story. There's always more to what God is doing. This story ought to also remind us that the question is not, have I been faithful enough, or have I been good enough? But the question should be, will God be faithful? Is God good enough? Because he always is. So, here in the story, we have Naomi. Naomi looks at her immediate circumstances. And God is looking at a bigger picture. He shows himself faithful not only to Naomi, but also to Ruth and even to us. Let's rehearse the highlights. There in chapter 1, the first couple of verses, this family goes to Moab. They're an Israelite family, but they're leaving their inheritance because there's a famine in the land. This is in the days of Judges, and because of the days of the Judges, we know that the famine in the land, according to the book of Deuteronomy, would be because Israel has not been faithful to their covenant relationship with God. They have turned away from God to the gods of the land, and so God is withholding the blessing that this promised land would be to them. And yet that doesn't necessarily mean that it's this family. When that is happening nationally as a whole, then the trouble comes upon all of Israel, even upon those who have not necessarily been guilty themselves. So we don't really know if this family is in famine because of their own guilt, because of something that they have done. I don't think we're supposed to know. And yet the family leaves the land and goes to Moab, and we're suspicious of that. We don't think that that can really be a good idea. We tend to judge them for that. And yet, we're not quite sure if that's a wrong thing to do, but certainly we can't be too hard on them. Abraham himself, when he came into the land where God had called him to, there was a famine in the land, and the first thing Abraham does is he heads south to Egypt. And so the family moves, moves to Moab. Now, there's a lot going on in the story that has to do with the names. As we get introduced to them, there's a famine in Bethlehem, and the name Bethlehem means the house of bread. There's a famine in the house of bread. The name of the, of the man in the story, Elimelech, his name means God is king. And yet, he does go looking for prosperity elsewhere instead of in the land God gave him. 
His wife, Naomi, her name means pleasant, and yet we're going to find that, that uh, uh, Naomi is no longer pleasant, but her heart has become bitter. She says it's because the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. There are two sons, Malon and Kilion, and their names mean weak and frail. Now, sometimes you wonder if you have done everything right as a parent. But if you did not name your boys weak and frail, then you're a few steps ahead of this family. I mean, can you imagine the trouble that these boys must have had in middle school with names like weak and frail? Well, as we go on a couple of verses, verses 3 and 4, Elimelech dies. And sometime after that, the boys take wives from the people of Moab. Now, Jewish tradition judges them harshly for this. But Moses and the law forbid Israelites to marry out of the seven nations, the Canaanite nations who were in the land, not specifically from the people of Moab who were outside their land. Now, the people of Moab were when, when the people of Israel got intermingled with them in, in, in the book of Numbers chapter 25. They did lead Israel astray into idolatry. So there's that. This just doesn't look good. Perhaps there's some foreshadowing here in errors that they are making and the consequences they're going to have. But we, again, we need to be a little careful because there also could be some foreshadowing of our tendency to rush to the judgment of others in the choices that they make. For instance, did these women, did these wives potentially leave their gods and align themselves, devote themselves to the one true God of Israel? Well, it doesn't say, at least not yet. So as, they, as, as we move forward in the story, unfortunately, as we may have expected, by their names, the two sons, weak and frail, do die. And that, that seems almost to conform of the expectation of judgment that we would have had upon them. And so now the, the, the woman Naomi is left alone with her two daughters-in-law. What are they going to do? They have no visible means of support. They have no, no husbands. There is no social security. There is no, there is no welfare help. What are they going to do? Well, on the bright side, Naomi picks up the paper one morning, and she sees the news that God has visited his people in giving them bread. The Hebrew language there is remarkable. God has visited, God has come near to his people in giving them bread. They don't know it yet, but there's far more to see there in those words. You see, God will visit his people in Bethlehem. The bread of life himself will come, be born in the house of bread. Jesus, the true bread who comes from heaven and gives life to the world. Yes, God comes near, Emmanuel, God with us. There's hints of that, but they can't see any of that yet. So they pack up and they depart for Bethlehem because there, there is bread. Naomi has no hope in herself. In her natural situation, as she sees that she has no sons, she has no one to carry on the family name, no one to provide for her in her old age, she is destitute and hopeless. And so Naomi blames herself for the troubles of, of herself and her daughter-in-law. She says to them in verse 13, It is exceedingly bitter to me for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. There it is. God is judging me for what I have done and the choices I have made, and this bitter grief upon me is now upon you. If I had done differently, this trouble would not have come upon my children. This is a mother's regret. Looking backward, 
instead of upward. You see, Naomi seems to have given up along the way. Perhaps it's with all the troubles of life, starting from the famine and forward from there. She has given up on faith making any real difference. She urges the daughters to go back to their people and their gods. As if it doesn't matter if you're with the God of Israel or the gods, the false gods of the Moabites. She still affirms the Lord as the one whose hand is against her. The Lord has testified against me, she says. The Almighty has brought calamity upon me. God's hand is at work here, but not for good, in her mind. But Ruth, Ruth remains faithful. Remember we asked before, we don't know what these women did. Did these women come to faith in the true God of Israel, the Lord? Ruth remains faithful. She says, your God, not the gods of Moab, will be my God. In verse 16. And so, in verses 20 and 21, they trudge back to Bethlehem. Where there, as they arrive, the people look and they see, is this Naomi? She's been gone so long. It's probably been 10 years or more. And she responds to them, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. Take note of how she interprets the circumstances in verse 21. She says, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. God has done this to me. Did she go out full? No, there was a famine. A famine in the land because of covenant unfaithfulness that we know that the time of the judges was full of. And so they left in desperation with two sickly boys, weak and frail. But when they went out, she had a husband and two sons. And now she has none. Just this Moabite daughter, an extra mouth to feed. And so, we move to chapter 2. The story takes a turn. The extra mouth to feed goes out into the fields to glean. Gleaning is to go behind the harvesters and to be able to pick up any of the scraps from the harvest that they might leave behind. And so she goes to the fields to glean. And as she does, she happens to happen upon the fields that belong to Boaz. Boaz, she doesn't know from anybody else, so why would it matter to her? But Boaz notices her. This could turn into a Hallmark movie at this point. You see, Boaz seems to be the most eligible bachelor in Bethlehem. He is called El Gibor, a mighty man, a man of faith and integrity. His greeting of his workers indicates that he sees them as he and them, fellow workers together with God in this harvest. The town respects, they look up to him. He's He's a relatively wealthy citizen in Bethlehem. And it gets even better. He buys the lady lunch. He gives her special care. He watches out for her safety. He tells his crew to leave behind handfuls out of the harvest for her to gather. Make her work easy and more abundant. We might assume at this point that Boaz is brawny and Ruth is beautiful. Because it is a Hallmark movie after all. But... Why would a beautiful girl in Moab marry a young, weak, frail, peasant immigrant who's going to have to move away sooner or later? That doesn't make a lot of sense. It's quite likely that Ruth actually is just average. She's an average young lady. But what Boaz notices about her is apparently not her appearance, but her character. He has heard of her faith in the Lord, in whom she has taken refuge, and he has heard of her faithfulness to Naomi, her mother-in-law, who is not the most pleasant person to be around, as we've taken note. 
Now Ruth comes home from that day in the fields of Boaz and she is loaded down with grain and even the, the leftovers from her lunch. God has visited his people. He has given them bread. Naomi looks at how much that Ruth has brought home and she pronounces just a general generic blessing of gratefulness. Blessed is the man who obviously took notice of you. She asks, well, whose field did you work in? She knows somebody went out of their way to help her. And Ruth tells her, well, some guy named Boaz. It was very unusual. Naomi, hearing the name, probably dropped the basket she was carrying. Boaz. It's as if a light has gone on in her head and maybe in her soul. Hope has sprung up again where there was no hope before. It has been rekindled for the first time in a long time. She sees today, not just today's house, a hand-to-mouth scramble, but God is working behind the scenes in ways that she had forgotten to ask or even imagine. Our blessing, that generic blessing that she gave is now, is now upgraded to these words. May he, Boaz, be blessed by the Lord, the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. God's kindness has not forsaken Naomi and Ruth. God's kindness has not forsaken the sons and her husband that she lost. Somehow this is going to work out for their favor as well because this man, Boaz, is a close relative, she says. She tells Ruth that he is one of our kinsmen redeemers. So Ruth continues in the fields of Boaz, and Naomi begins to look upward instead of backward. The story moves through the harvest, and then there's in chapter 3, that night at the threshing floor. Now, as you read that chapter, keep it G-rated, people. It, it, it really is. Don't let people's imaginations take you, take you off there. This is a Hallmark movie, after all. And now Naomi has been reminded of a provision of the kinsman redeemer, a near relative who would take a widow as wife and raise, and, and raise her son as an heir in the name of the deceased first husband so that his name would not be cut off from Israel, but he would continue to carry forward the inheritance. Well, that's the law, the provision that God had made of a kinsman redeemer. But the question is, in the days of the judges, does anybody still follow these gracious and redemptive ways of the Lord? Boaz does. He does what is right because he truly wants what is best for Ruth and Naomi. He wants what is best according to the Lord. He trades up in the draft to eliminate the competition of the other kinsmen and he marries the girl. They have a son, little Obed. And he is laid on Naomi's lap. It's as if the child is born to Naomi, and she from then takes care of him. God's kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. God has provided for Ruth and for Naomi, restoring for them in Elimelech's family. He has restored the family line. God has restored that which had died out from the weak and the frail sons. God has brought life and future out of death and desolation. Now, there's much that we don't know about Naomi. But we do know that along the way, her faith had faded. She seems to blame the Lord for her troubles. And in doing so, she's also blaming herself. 
In the midst of the losses, she's likely asked herself, if only we hadn't come here, if only I'd convinced Elimelech to stay in Bethlehem, if only I had this, if only I had that. The mother was left with grief and regrets. It's hard not to think like that. Because we always, we always don't measure up. And yet we tend to place our outcomes on a transactional basis that calls for us to measure up. And we can't. The bad news is that leaves plenty of room for the blame game when things go in the wrong direction. And sooner or later, they will. Even Job said it, man is made for trouble as the sparks fly upward. In, as broken people in this broken world, there will be trouble. Sometimes it's consequences because of the stupid things I've done, but sometimes it's because we are broken and everyone around us is broken. And that's what comes out of that. And yet, we think for ourselves, if only I had done this. What if I had done that? It keeps us up at night, just as I described in playing those board games. Maybe God is dealing bitterly with my children, or my marriage, or my health, or those I care about, because of something which I did. Something I failed to do. If only, if only. Now, because it's Mother's Day, I want to speak especially to moms, although this tendency can be true for all of us. Moms, you will at times miss it. You will at times blow it. You cannot be perfect, even though your heart wants to be, and you want to be for others. There are times when the kids are whining and fussing all day, and finally you lose it. You're sweet and loving, insightful and understanding. Okay, let's just say your clod of a husband asks a question and you snap back. Or maybe he's not paying attention and that raises the tensions. And later, when you look backward, you tell yourself, if only you had done more of this, if only you had acted more like that, if only you hadn't done this, will you please give it a break, Naomi? When did God start dealing with you on a transactional basis? Does God keep score like that, do you think? I'll tell you what. The, the score God keeps was settled in Jesus. There is nothing more for us to, to do. There's nothing more for us except to live in this new life that God has given in the house of our Redeemer. Jesus is our Boaz, and he has made for us a new life out of the broken life that was caused by whatever. But God has come near. God has visited us, and God has given us new life and a kinsman, God's Son, becoming a man fully human to be with us and for us and to give us his new life and us life with him. And so we look upward and forward instead of backwards because... We can't go backwards. You know, the real tragedy in this story would have been that after they returned to Bethlehem and after the incident uh, through the fields and there at the threshing floor and the passing of the shoe and the wedding and the birth and all of these things, that Naomi had just stayed in her room, bitterly looking backwards, thinking, if only I had done things differently. Naomi had a whole new life to live now. And that's what she does. She takes that child that God has graciously given. It's not even her child, but that's the child she'll now love and nurture 
and she looks upward and forward. You see, God has been faithful in his promise and his purposes to show kindness to the living and the dead. We were dead, and God has made us alive in Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Do you believe that? If God has showed us this kindness even in death, then why would we think God would suddenly now become vindictive and keep score when he has given us new life? We remember our failings. We remember our faults. How we didn't measure up. And then when trouble comes, we assume that the debt of our regrets must have now come due. But brothers, how can a debt now come due if it has been paid in full in the grace of the Lord? This is truly the critical point for us. Because if we continue to think of of the things in life in transactional terms, if you do good, then God will bless you. And if you fall short, then God will deal bitterly with you. If we continue to think in those transactional terms, we will do things and say things that will pass this on in our families and to our children. Our families will end up becoming places where we earn one another's favor instead of a place where grace and acceptance flow freely. If we tend to keep score against ourselves instead of breathing in God's forgiveness and cleansing, we will also end up communicating that keeping score to others. We'll find ourselves judging them, and they will sense it. We will likely remind them of regrets and debt and not being good enough, instead of being a fragrance of grace and hope and restoration and new life. The good news will only sound like good news if it has truly and genuinely become good news to us. Did you get that? The good news will only sound like good news to others if it has genuinely become good news to us. So Naomi left empty. She left empty and she was brought back full. God made her full. We leave the story with her willing to fill her life with what God has done for her looking upward, going forward. For the Lord has remembered his kindness to the living and to the dead, to Naomi and to Ruth, and to you and I. I think it would be good this morning for us just to to pause here and pray. Because you have regrets. I have regrets. We have regrets this week. And yet, in the midst of that, we need to bring those to the Lord and receive His forgiveness and cleansing. And we need to then continue not to look backwards at what the enemy would remind us and accuse us of when it's already been paid in full, but we need to look upward at our God and His grace and His forgiveness, and we need to look forward into the life that He's given us today and tomorrow and forever. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We thank you that you do. Lord, keep on cleansing us from all sin. Lord, we would confess this morning again that we we have not been good enough. We have not done well enough. Lord, there are times that we have failed and we fear that this would come back upon our families in trouble and pain and hurt and loss. But Lord... We have every right to come to you in the name of Jesus and to ask you for 
your forgiveness of our guilt, for removing our shame, for cleansing us of our sin, and to again lead us in your paths of righteousness. Father, we have every right to come to you and ask this because you have given it to us. You have, you have said, call upon me and I will answer you. You have told us that, that uh, if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, we gratefully thank you for that again this morning. Lord, we'll do it again tonight. We'll need it again tomorrow. And thank you, Father, that you continue. Even our own sin now, even our own inability reminds us not to look backwards, but it reminds us, it urges us, it presses us to look upward to you. Thank you for that. Thank you that you easily and quickly receive us and forgive us. That No one can forgive better than you. And so, Father, we come to you as mothers and as fathers, as friends and neighbors, Lord, where we have fallen short. We ask, we receive, we thank you for your forgiveness. And Lord, help us. Would you help us, Lord, to go to people around us with that blessing of grace and forgiveness and hope and life? Lord, let it just come out of us. Help us to give an answer for this hope that is within us. Let there be a fragrance of forgiveness that the good news from us is truly good news to people around us. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.